Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. I hope you guys are doing well. I know this week has been emotionally intensive for many of us who live in in the United States. I know that we had tons of riots and on top of that, we witnessed injustice that George Floyd experienced and heartbreaking the video of how things unfolded during his interaction with the police officer. I know that these images are very painful and I know many of my clients of all races are experiencing rage, frustration, hopelessness, helplessness. I think now it's more than ever, it's important to make sure that you are taking action based on your values, whether if it means like channeling your frustration toward the people who you vote for or donating money if you can to the nonprofits that are elevating African-American voices or even supporting your friends, black friends and colleagues in your community. I know for me, when I take actions based on my values, it's always been really helpful to be able to be more comfortable with many of the uncomfortable emotions that we all are experiencing. And lastly, I know that many of you might have trauma background and watching these things can trigger some emotions. So my invitation for you is to make sure that you are moderating and regulating how much you get expose yourself to these images because in order for you to be able to support others, it's important for you to make sure you are effectively managing your emotions. If you are a new listener, I have a gift for you. So if you haven't downloaded my ebook, I wrote this ebook on how to increase your sexual desire. So it's my gift to you. If you have some time to read, this would be a good place to kind of explore how you can take action to increase your desire, the link is going to be on the show notes. So on our episode today, we're going to talk about how you can support your partner who's experienced sexual assault. And more importantly, is to think about when when you guys would be ready to have sex. I know that many of the partners are hesitant to approach the topic after their partner experienced sexual assault. So we're going to talk about the impact of assault in the relationship and the steps that you can take to make sure that you are continuing to have great sex life with your partner. Our guest is Dr. Miklos Hargiti. He's a licensed clinical psychologist working in private practice in New York City at the Center for Relational Fulfillment and Manhattan Therapy Collective group practices focusing on evidence-based therapeutic care. At the Center for Relational Fulfillment, Dr. Hargiti works with individuals and couples addressing needs related to intimacy, sex, and the impact of trauma. You can read his full bio in our show notes. Also, make sure you're listening until the end of this episode. At the end, I have some exciting announcement for you guys. Anyhow, here's my conversation with Dr. Mikolos Hargati. Hello and welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am so excited and honored to have Dr. Mikolos Hargeti on our show. Did I say the last name right? 
You did. You did. <laughs> okay, excellent. <laughs> so we, in the past few weeks, we talked about sexual shame and its impact on our sexuality. And last week, we had one of our wonderful colleague and sex therapist. She talked about experience of sexual assault and its impact on someone's kind of experiencing shame. So I feel this is such a wonderful follow-up to that conversation. So when when people kind of hear and experience their partner experience some form of sexual assault, that can be very confusing for them. So we're going to talk about and we're going to focus on the experiences of the partners. But can you tell us briefly about what are some of the common sexual symptoms that survivors may experience post-assault? Absolutely. Um, So I think survivors tend to go kind of in one or two directions. After an assault, there may be this feeling of looking at sex as sort of being a a no-go area or an activity that they've sort of decided to close close themselves off to out of a legitimate concern over safety and obviously what had happened to them. They may decide that intimacy becomes something that they just don't want to engage in anymore. It can be too triggering. Within the context of a relationship, this can be very difficult as partners, you know, obviously want to come back to a sense of normalcy, but they may not necessarily know how to go about doing that. The the flip side is you might have a lot of survivors sort of re-engage with sex again, but they kind of disengage from their bodies and they maybe feel disconnected. So, behaviorally, they may be actually having sex and they may be actually able to be intimate, but they're not really, if you ask them, they're not really feeling connected in the moment. And it's, 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 it's a different kind of avoidance in that sense. Well, I'm so glad that you talked about at some of survivors experiencing increased desire because I certainly see that in my practice that some of my clients post assault, they're telling me that the desire increase, uh, it can be confusing for them. Can you tell us more about why, why someone's desire may increase? I think there's a whole range of responses that both feel unintuitive or counterintuitive and intuitive. So f- there might be this uh, sense of sort of remastering or reconnecting with sex again. If that was something that was highly valued before the assault, there may be a sense of reclaiming one's life back. And I think that's the spirit of that is wonderful. And I think that's a a tremendous place to be. Um, You always want to be careful about the safety and sort of the risks that people take. They may find themselves sort of engaging in risk-taking activities. And you want to obviously be careful that they're not doing that. But the increase in sexual desire is something to talk about and kind of process and make sense of. Certainly not something to discourage or try to, you know, wish away. Tell, I know you mentioned a, about a couple of things that the partners might experience, but what are some of the common questions a partner may have around what happened specifically? Yeah, so so partners are really kind of a key player in all of this. You know, they're the primary person who has a lot of the face-to-face contact with survivors. They're the ones that really can do the most help. And unfortunately, they oftentimes don't necessarily know what to do. They can have a lot of questions and they can sort of either almost ask too many questions in an attempt to sort of understand what happened, which can be overwhelming. They may sort of take a hands-off approach and not want to talk about it at all. Depending on the circumstances of the assault, you know, I've had a, I had a couple, uh, a couple whose the assault occurred within the context of the relationship happening. And so there was a lot of frustration and guilt and shame for both members. There was a sense of sort of self-blame that the significant other felt that they should have been there to help and stop. 
So there's just a whole host of questions that partners can have around their role or what they can do. And and oftentimes, they're just ill-equipped on knowing what to do or or how to even go about to help. And it also, I know you were, it seems like the couple you were talking about, it was in the context of a partner was present or was in the same kind of area when that happened. But Mm -hmm. it, it reminded me of the some clients that I've worked with a few years ago, actually during my postdoc, that their experience was their partner sexually assaulted them. And yeah. they wanted to come in to address that piece. Do you think is that something that people can work through as a couple if that has been their experience? That is a whole nother, I think that's a whole nother animal in terms of how to address that. And I, I think that is something that the couple needs to be in a a very, there needs to be a lot of processing and work, both individual therapy and together in terms of just understanding the circumstances of what had happened, you know, really uh, having a very intact or uh, comprehensive safety plan around how to even resume sex and what that even might look like. I think there needs to be a lot of conversations around just domestic violence, if any prior history of that, certainly too. So yeah, that's that's a very, I think the spectrum of sort of couples and, and how significant others can play a role, that's certainly a very extreme case, but I think it can be an informative one, particularly um, as the significant other in your example actually really perpetrated. And that's mm-hmm. completely unacceptable. And that opens up a whole new uh, you know, series of clinical questions and, and avenues. And I agree with you. And perhaps I wonder then in those cases, they need, as you mentioned, to, to kind of like for providers and for the couple to come up with different layers of safety and protection within the relationship. Because it's my experience that many survivors, they struggle with restoring their, their trust with sex and sexuality at times, if specifically the assault was by someone that they knew or it was a date rape, but I think it's also significantly more painful if you're someone that you trusted, like your partner, your spouse, kind of across that line and violated you. But what are some of the advice you have for the partners that they want to support their significant others, but they're confused? Absolutely. Um, I think partners, I, I tend to uh, encourage them to have a lot of compassion and patience um, and give them a lot of information on what to expect from their significant other. They may not necessarily know what trauma reactions look like, what are common experiences such as self-blame, what are called sort of rape myth beliefs, sort of like the things that we tell ourselves that might be true or actually are not after an assault, um, and really help them be prepared for what the landscape and the road might look like ahead, and really fostering a sense of understanding that they actually have a very important role to play in terms of being that safe place that they can be at. Uh, They can be a secure base, they can be the person that their partner comes to to really feel vulnerable and and, in a good way and really sort of rebuild and foster that sense of intimacy and and safe space. I think for significant, uh, you know, particularly for male significant others, I think there's a sense of wanting to sort of problem solve a little bit and giving them this idea that if you give them sort of the steps that they can do it. But oftentimes these problems don't lend themselves so easily. They might just need to be comfortable with sitting with their partner and being kind of okay with being lending their presence and and just sort of verbalizing and and showing support in that way. That might kind of be the best place to start. And I agree with you. And I think something else that that I've noticed and I heard in my individual sessions with clients, sometimes the partner also kind of have this attitude, like blaming the victim, Mm. thinking about, okay, if he or she didn't go there, if he or she didn't drink, I always tell her not to drink. We wouldn't be at this place. She wouldn't experience that. 
Do you have any recommendation around people how to address that, like individually and in the relationship? Absolutely. And that's actually a fairly, unfortunately, can be a common response. I think there, I think a lot of couples, uh, significant others sometimes feel uncomfortable even believing that or feeling that way. But I've had, you know, in my practice, I've had couples and I've actually had individual sessions with the significant other only just to sort of help them understand a little bit of the reality of the situation and that this wasn't sort of a you know an infidelity being covered up by an assault allegation this is actually this is what happened and the best case scenarios they really they change their tune they they understand in the worst case scenarios i think you have to do a lot more care around helping them understand you know the significance of their of their effects and and, and their uh, what they say has an impact and you might have to do a lot more work on your hands but again that unfortunately can be a very common response right and i think i appreciate that you do individual sessions with people to talk about it and process it because i think it can create a huge rupture in the relationship if you're verbalizing that with a partner or blaming the victim and uh, that that would also make it harder for the relationship to especially the intimate part as well to get restored it. So when I know sometimes for some some couples it takes them few months. For some people it takes them few years. But when they're ready to resume sex and they want to have healthy sexuality and healthy intimacy together, what are some of the steps that you recommend people to take? Absolutely. So I think once they've gotten to the place where they're ready to sort of begin that process, I help them sort of I want to have them have a sense of, of multiple successes under their belt. So sort of fostering maybe even just healthy sexual activities without necessarily, you know, intercourse or penetration PV, just sort of fostering those healthy uh, sexual non non uh, physical touches that are both sexual and non-sexual, just to sort of feel comfortable being in that space again. I think sensate focus for a lot of clients can be incredibly powerful. Um, it sort of takes sex off the table and it, it reduces that level of anxiety and that trigger. And it allows couples to sort of explore their bodies and just to feel comfortable in that erotic space. I've had clients sort of do kind of a green light, yellow light, red light type of exercise. It actually allows the, I think the survivor to have a sense of a, a bit, feel empowered really to be able to actually moderate which touch is okay and which isn't. And by having couples chart that out a little bit, you know, what's the appropriate touches, what are sort of green, that's okay, it's always been safe, what's red, which, you know, which is, uh, you know, never okay, or that's, that's off the table. And then yellow is sort of a little bit, we can work with that. It gives them a little bit of a landscape to kind of figure out, you know, I think after an assault, all physical touch and sexual activity kind of becomes this big sort of, um, you know, unknown area. They don't really know what's safe and what isn't anymore. And by helping them sort of chart that out together, it can help sex feel pleasurable again. And it can actually give them a good, a good way of looking for the next, you know, the next landscape or it can help them find the next. Yeah. Well, I love Sensate Focus. And mm-hmm. we had a, s- a specific episode. We went in details about one of the people who wrote, wrote about it. But for our listeners that they don't know what Sensate Focus is, can you tell us more about that? Absolutely. Um, so Sensei Focus really started with uh, Masters and Johnson, some sex researchers back in the 70s, I believe. And, you know, really, it's it's just a fundamental, you know, and it's been modified and used by, by therapists and uh, clinicians. But really, it's a way of taking sex as sort of a goal off the table and allowing couples to sort of re-engage with touch. You know, you might have a couple sit down together and really just enjoy physical touch without the, the expectation of sex as sort of the final point. Um, You might even, you know, you can 
have it so partners don't talk to each other. They just sort of sit with that feeling. You can have talk, but you know, you want to sort of avoid that desire to sort of get into that expectation role, that expectation assumption of sex. And what ends up happening, I think, with a lot of clients is that they rediscover those feelings again. You know, you almost have couples who almost like to do foreplay again, and they, you know, over time, they kind of lose it, and then they kind of find it again with sensate focus. And oh, and I think the, the positives is that you, you really do allow couples to verbalize and communicate with each other. You know, this is actually something I want more of, and I've noticed that we've done less of it, and it helps them feel like they're in the driver's seat a little bit of their bodies. I agree with you. And I feel one of the other great things about Sensate Focus is that like many people, they don't know what they don't have kind of good toolbox when it comes to the foreplay. Mm-hmm. They don't know what they can do in foreplay. And with this uh, kind of like exercises, they give themselves and their partner permission to slow down mm-hmm. and see, okay, how does this feel? What are some kind of a type, different types of touches? And it gives them opportunity to kind of cultivate the bigger toolbox uh, when mm-hmm. it comes to foreplay. And I think it's, it's very important for especially survivors and in the relationship to, if they want, if they're struggling to focus on their kind of mindful touching sensate focus that you mentioned because that can be a very helpful tool and the other things is sometimes you know although the couple are can be very mindful very thoughtful about their approaches a partner might trigger trigger and Mm. I don't necessarily feel that's related to the partner doing something wrong what do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. Um, it's always careful to sort of, uh, or at least important to tell survivors, you know, for, for that assault, you know, what happened to them, their body is, is the crime scene, in other words, and they can, you know, th- there might be physical postures or touches that really are evoking those triggered responses, independent of whoever is engaging the touching behavior, you know, the, the significant other might find themselves touching something or, or uh, trigger setting off that triggered response and almost blaming themselves as if they did something wrong. And really that's, that's important for them to realize that that's actually not the case. And I think by creating corrective experiences, the significant other can actually help relearn those touches are actually good things and that those touches can actually be sources of pleasure rather than sources of pain. Absolutely. The other struggle that some of the partners have is they definitely want to, at least most of the clients that I've seen in my practice, they definitely want to be mindful of their partners. When they're ready, they don't want their partner do something that's not healthy for them or triggering. But meanwhile, as a sexual being, they are struggling with sexual frustration and they don't know what to do if they are in a monogamous relationship. What are some of the recommendations you have around that? Yeah, I think that's a, a, a really just a, you have to have a frank conversation with, with couples about how to sort of navigate this new landscape, whether that's really just sort of allowing, you know, and I'm using sort of air quotes, but for some couples really being okay with the partner masturbating on their own. I, I'm always sort of careful about, you know, I think the idea of consensual monogamy during times like this can, can get kind of tricky. Um, I certainly wouldn't recommend that to all couples in that exact situation. But case by case basis, sure, that's definitely something that I think clinicians can talk about with their clients in these cases. Just sort of allowing, I think, for the survivor to allow, uh, have a, um, an understanding that their partner, 
you know, has their own sexual needs as well and sort of just accommodating that and just really fostering compassion for the both of them in the situation. This is a very difficult situation. You know, nobody, the survivor obviously didn't ask to be assaulted. The couple didn't ask for their sex life to be disrupted in this way. And so they have to make necessary adjustments in order to get back on that path. But in the meantime, you know, you might have to have couple or the significant other, you know, masturbate on their own by themselves just to sort of get that uh, sense of pleasure that they have regularly and and the significant other or the the partner the survivor might sort of have to be okay with that as a an important you know thing for their couple their significant other to feel you know in the moment and for the the um sexual relationship to kind of continue in that way well i i agree with you that it can be tricky if people want to open up the relationship during that that time because if that wasn't something that they had perhaps I can imagine the survivor might feel betrayed, might feel more rejected. So uh, whenever that people want to open up the relationship, similar to you, I'm not necessarily or at all against non-consensual, non-monogamy. But uh, where, where it gets tricky is I feel like people are kind of making decisions on these things prematurely and without kind of yeah. thoughts and uh, consideration of uh, what would that entail? What what steps that you want to take? So, and definitely in the midst of the crisis like this, mm-hmm. that wouldn't be a good time to explore that. But I think perhaps, as you mentioned, it's a good time to revisit the fidelity agreement. So if mm-hmm. part of the fidelity agreement for you guys in the past was your partner couldn't masturbate or couldn't watch porn or couldn't do those kind of solo activities, it's important to keep in mind that they are human being and they have desire and they feel... Perhaps it could be better for the health of the relationship if partner's sexual needs are getting met. So therefore, that wouldn't be that much pressure on the partner, the survivor, to press herself toward recovery when she's not ready. Absolutely. And I think the worst case scenario or what you certainly wouldn't want to have happen is for survivors to feel like they're on a timeline to somehow you know, have to move their bodies and themselves faster along than they would. And you also don't want to have a significant other feel resentment or feel frustration that they're somehow having to put their own sexual needs on hold too. So it can be a very delicate balancing act between respecting both of their needs, but also just helping them understand that this is a very difficult and unusual situation and might require some sort of unusual solutions or some just different arrangements that they hadn't always considered. The other possible challenge and what I heard from some of my clients is that they, previous to trauma, previous to assault, they had kinkier sex and they mm. their and their partner, they loved kinky sex. It was wonderful for them. But now their partner is trying to be super delicate with them. And they, they feel like the, the sex, they've experienced their current sex, not necessarily being as fulfilling. So when people want to kind of, I think the solution to that would be kind of having open communication, like the rest of the things we talked about, what are some of the, so if the partner, want to approach the survivor to have these conversations about what are some of the pointers you have around how to have a successful sex-related conversation about this? Yeah, I think so. That's a great question. I think regardless of the subject matter or the content of the conversation, both couple, both partners need to really know how to have these difficult conversations without 
I think reacting or sort of jumping to conclusions or finding themselves getting overwhelmed. So a lot of just, you know, a lot of exercises around helping couples have these conversations in a, in a, in a respectful, important, considerate manner without OB getting overwhelmed is really important. You know, you certainly don't want to breed, you certainly don't want to uh, have a significant other have a start to sort of broach an uncomfortable subject and have a survivor feel triggered. And then it sort of sets this cascade of responses where both people really feel like nothing got done or worse, you know, they feel like they got injured in the conversation. So really just having a, a respectful, a mindful understanding of what both people are trying to accomplish in these conversations by bridging the, that gap around sexual preference, reintroducing kink or any other modalities back into their sex life. Absolutely. And I recommend people to maybe perhaps they can start having this conversation with their partner when they're ready, kind of as similar to what we talked about in the past, having this open unended conversations and coming into the conversation and dialogue with an open mind. But if they feel that they're stuck, then the next step that I recommend, especially for survivors when they're ready to have sex again, to go to sex therapists and mm -hmm. to kind of go to a professional that can facilitate these conversations. Mm -hmm. On that note, I know you have a, a thriving sex therapy practice <laughs> yourself. <laughs> so if our listeners are kind of curious about where to get a hold of you, what are some of the places that they can contact? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a licensed clinical psychologist practicing in New York City. Actually, I'm uh, I'm working at the Center for Relational Fulfillment. Uh, me and my colleague, and we actually just do sex and couples therapy work. I'm in the process of actually getting a lot of this ongoing training and consultation. So for me, it's really wonderful to actually meet a lot of these couples and individuals that we've kind of talked about just now, who are coming in with these concerns and wanting someone to actually be able to adjudicate and kind of understand from a third party perspective what it's like to talk about sex in the, in the context of a, a traumatized relationship or a relationship in which partners have trauma. But my, um, you know, my practice is uh, at this point, it's moving all online, uh, you know, in, in light of current events, but I do ongoing, you know, consultations with uh, colleagues and I have individual and couples therapy, which has been really, really interesting and wonderful work and very rewarding. Excellent. So I leave a link in the show notes, guys, if you didn't get a chance to write the information about Dr. Miklush website, you can find it there. I, as you mentioned that we're recording this in the midst of coronavirus <laughs> crisis. And I appreciate that you took time out of your busy schedule for us to have this conversation and hope we have you on the show in the future. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. I hope you guys found our conversation useful and it gave you some guideline about what you can do to emotionally and sexually connect with your partner after he or she experienced sexual assault or trauma. I know that can be challenging, but I've seen it done many times in my practice. So it doesn't mean that the fact that your partner experienced sexual trauma, they might not be interested in sex or they are defective now and they're not able to have fulfilling sexual experiences. We had a number of different episodes on impact of sex, impact of trauma and sex. So make sure you're checking them out. And always you can work with a therapist that can help you guys as a couple to work through this challenge. 
As far as the announcement I mentioned, last week, we passed the 1 million download mark. And I was so excited about it that I want to create all this announcement on Instagram and do a giveaway. But in light of what happened, I decided to pause the celebration. What we're doing now is whoever writes us an honest review in iTunes and send us a snapshot of it, I'll send them a bottle of the Uber Loop, which is a lubricant that I highly recommend. I use it. I'm not a sponsor for them, but I thought I want to send you guys, gift you guys something that I, I've been using and I'm happy with it. So if you send me a snapshot of the review you wrote after it goes live, I will uh, mail you the bottle of the Uber Lube. What you need to do is you can email me the picture, a snapshot of the review at drmoali at oasis2care.com or you can just uh, DM me on my Instagram account, which is at Sexology Podcast. You can find me on both places and I will mail you the bottle of the Lube. I hope you guys have an okay rest of the week and I'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.